we just pick up tradition and we do things out of tradition rather than really out of knowing the word of God that this is the right thing to do. And I want us to get to that place that we understand. I'm rubbing against something here. Want us to understand that we are here to learn about a wonderful, wonderful Savior and how to live this Christian life. You're not born with the knowledge of how to live a Christian life. I was not born, nor did I think for many years that I would be a teacher of the gospel or a preacher of the word of God. My goal was to be a successful heating, air-conditioned business and go on about my life. You and I have to understand the main purpose and focus of Jesus Christ establishing what he called his church is for the purpose of his people to be educated in the things of God and the lifestyle that God intends for us to live. The lifestyle that God intends for you and I to live. And that is important for us to really understand that the real purpose of Jesus coming is not just wrapped up in one one thing called salvation. It's not. And oftentimes we put salvation out in the front of everything. And yes, it should be. But that's not all that it is. And we have to understand that. That God is expecting more out of us than just going around telling people, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Now, you have the wrong purpose here. And if we don't understand that, we're going to lose something that is very, very important here. The real understanding of his coming. Because without understanding that, we're going to lose a great deal. And many people today don't really understand the birth of Christ. They just see him as a savior. And Jesus came to do much, much more.
salvation is only the beginning of a marriage relationship. It is not the end. Wouldn't it be great if you had the wedding and we get excited about the wedding and rightfully so because two people are coming together and that woman and that man and especially the man I would presume is very excited about what is called the honeymoon. And it should be. Because it's the beginning of a brand new life for both of them. But the night after the honeymoon, or that week after the honeymoon, what would you think if they said goodbye to each other and went their own separate ways? Now, they're married. There was a wedding. There was a honeymoon. And then they went their own separate way. That's a lot of the relationships with Jesus Christ. You have the wedding when the person first accepts the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the honeymoon, all the joy and the thrill of it. But then somewhere along the way, somebody says, goodbye, I'm going another way. What would you think about it? See, Jesus came to be more than just a savior, to save us from sin or the dominion of sin. He did not come to restore Israel to greatness. That was not his purpose for coming. Nowhere do you find him really condemning or trying to destroy the Roman government. You don't see it anywhere in scripture. He came, now hear me on this. He came to set up his kingdom on earth that was already in heaven. Now, a lot of times you will hear the argument, Jesus didn't come to set up a kingdom. If you use the illustration that a king always has so much land and boundaries and so forth. Jesus did not come to die for land. Jesus did not come to die for boundary markers that separate Mexico and Canada and the United States or from one state to another state. You're leaving Ohio. Welcome to Pennsylvania. He didn't come for that. And yet each one of those entities ruled their little section in a sense. He didn't come for that. Jesus came to set up his kingdom in the heart and minds of men and women. To set up his reign 
in our personal life. To govern our personal life. To be over our lives. He didn't come for land, boundary markers. He came for the hearts and minds of men and women. And to sit on the throne of their life and to govern over them. That's his kingdom. That's his kingdom. That's his kingdom. It's not land, not territory, not boundaries. It's the hearts and minds of men and women. Go to Luke 17. Now our goal is to get to Isaiah chapter 9. So I'm kind of like building a foundation for myself to stand on when I get there. So in 17, 20 and 21, it says, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now they're looking for a physical kingdom like the Roman Empire. They're looking for something like a kingdom like what old Israel once had or the Babylonians once had. They're looking for the wrong type of kingdom. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. In other words, you're not going to really see any boundary lines. You're not going to see anything that says this is the United States and this is Canada or this is Mexico or this is Russia. You're not going to observe that. You're not going to see that. Catch 21. Nor will people say, here it is. It's not something you're going to go and discover. Oh, we finally reached Florida. There's the sign, Florida. There's the sign, California. We've been traveling all this time. There it is. No. It's not going to happen that way. There it is. Because the kingdom of God is where at? Within you within you he rules in you he governs your life that your life would come to a place of surrender to him and obedience to him and people will see that and that's what's important He's ruling in the hearts and minds of men and women. That's his kingdom. And it has no boundaries. It's happening in England. It's happening in China. It's happening in Africa. There's no boundaries to this message or to his kingdom because it's taking place in the hearts and minds of people. Go to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4. And 42 and 43. 
He says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was and tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must preach the good news, some Bibles would use the word message, of the kingdom of God to other towns. The message of the kingdom, that there's a message from a kingdom that already exists, that has no boundaries here. And my purpose is to preach the message of that kingdom here on earth. Now, if there was no kingdom, there can be no message. And if there's no message, there can be no messenger. But because there is a kingdom, there is a messenger who brings a message from that kingdom. That exists. Now, I want you to think about something with me here. Did I jump too far ahead? No, okay. Is that the Roman Empire is the closest comparison that we have to the government of our God or the way his kingdom will function. It is the closest comparison, yet recognizing there's really probably no comparison to the overall. But of all the empires and governments before the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire becomes the closest one in the manner in which the kingdom of God is going to operate here on earth. And that Jesus is going to govern over. In Galatians 4.4, 4, he tells us, that in the fullness of time that Jesus was going to come. He says, but when the time has fully come, now the important words here are fully come. If you pick fruit from a tree before it is fully ripened, it's not going to it's not going to be the same. Even though you put it on the, as we used to do, put it on the window shelf for the sun to hit it to help ripen. The best place for it to ripen is on that tree. If you pick that fruit too late, you've missed it. The fullness of time here really means the ripest time, the best time, and as one author puts it, when everything is in its proper place. Everything in its proper place. He comes. 
he comes. He comes. And the Roman Empire somewhat exemplifies that by helping getting things in their proper place. See if I can illustrate that some. One, the Roman Empire had the largest empire or ruled over more nations, more people, more ethnic groups, more languages than any other prior government from that time even to this time. It ruled from Africa to Scotland. It incorporated more nations and cultures and languages than any other empire. Now, here becomes also the difference between the Roman government and those governments that preceded it. The Roman government would not so much take slaves back to Rome, although they did take some. The Roman government was the first government we will find in history that took the best of the people back to educate. We find that somewhat in Babylonia. They took Daniel back to Babylonia. Not the Roman Empire, but Babylon. They stripped Israel of its very best. Not in order for them to go back, not to educate, but to use them in their country. And then they destroyed the military. The Roman, they didn't destroy the military. They wanted that military to fight for who? For them. They just had to change their mind and negotiate with them in such a way that that military now would fight with the Roman Empire and be used by Rome. God saves us in a sense that we now fight for what kingdom? His kingdom, not for this world. He saves us. He does, when he saves us, he just doesn't bring us straight to heaven. He educates us that we can be equipped to be used of him for his glory. Second part about Rome is that they send a tetra or a governor. And that's why in New Testament, you read about the different governors over sections of Israel and different parts of the country, and Rome did that. They sent governors. Now, the purpose of the governor was to help educate the people in the lifestyle of Romans and, in a sense, convert them over to being Roman citizens. 
process, our citizenship is not here, but our citizenship is in heaven. And that was the job of the Roman governor, to help educate, convert, and to make the so-called pagans into Roman citizens. Now, you will find that very much so with Paul in Acts 22, and the question is, how does Paul, who is a Pharisee, who is a Jew, also a Roman citizen? Now, understand this. For Paul to ask the question, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? Paul had to be educated in the laws and some of the thinking and the ways of the Romans to be able to ask the guards, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen and then take another step and appeal to Caesar. He had to know something about Roman law. Somebody had to educate him in Roman law. I'm quite sure he did not learn that in Pharisaical school. He did not learn that in his Jewish textbook. Because you understand, Jews really did hate the Romans. But somewhere, either a father or grandfather bought citizenship into Rome or converted over into Rome became a Roman citizen somewhere that allowed Paul also to be a Roman citizen. Now, Jesus' kingdom is in the heart. Go to Luke with me, chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. You will be with child, speaking to Mary, and give birth to a son. Mary, all you're going to be is a storage place while I form this body in your womb of this child that's going to be born by you. No human intersection. Nothing that a man does with Mary, but somehow God through the Holy Spirit does this work in the womb of Mary that will bring forth a son that is given to her, but also given to us. And he says, you will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him. Who will give him? The Lord God will give him. Let's go a little further. Will give him. 
the throne of his father David. Now catch 33 because this is what's important as we go over to Isaiah 9. And I want you to see it in Isaiah 9. And he will reign. He will what? He will reign. He will rule. Not over land. Not over country, per se. He's going to reign and rule over the hearts and minds of people. Of people. Of people. Now, this thing straightened out or how I'm going to have to work I want you to think with me what may the world have been like when Jesus was born what might the world have been like when Jesus was born one The minds of the people were filled with fatal error. Our country is just about there also. Our minds are filled with everything but the truth. Look how we live. Look how we treat each other. Our minds are filled with erroneous teaching or teaching done by demons who use other human beings to teach us error. And therefore we live in such a way that is hostile towards God. The minds of the people were filled with fatal errors. Number two, The chosen people had fallen into traditionalism and formalism. A lot of our churches follow more traditional things than we follow the real teaching of the word. Sometimes we put more emphasis in our traditional things we do every year on the calendar than we do in learning the word of God. And I'm not trying to knock anybody's tradition. But when tradition trumps the word of God, then something's wrong. When formality trumps the word of God, then something's wrong. The Gentile world was just filled of idols, immorality, unbelief. The Gentile world. If you check and see where Jesus did most of his ministry, it was not in Jerusalem. It was in Galilee. And in Galilee is where you had the mixture of the world. The other thing that you need to truly understand, most of Jesus' ministry was not around healing. It was around teaching. It was around teaching. 
Because the only way to bring people out of error or wrong thinking or wrong teaching, wrong concepts, is through teaching. It's through teaching. Now let's go over to Isaiah chapter 9. He describes, as he did there in Luke 1, that a son would be born or a child would be born. For to us, a child is born. What is so significant about this child? And we're going to get into some of this next week. If you would take all the decades before Jesus is born, you have some very intelligent men and people who were also born previous to that. Progress was taking place, yes. But the loss of hearing God's word was also taking place. Or understanding that there was only one true God was also taking place. So the world is being filled with many different philosophies and many different types of teachings. And that's what's happening today. We have all type of philosophy, all types of teaching, and people are all saying, this is the truth, this is the truth, I have the truth, I have the truth. And you have to discern what is the truth. And God says, I'm going to send my own messenger. I'm going to come down myself and I'm going to teach my creation how I would have them to live and worship me. And therefore, the purpose of this child being born was to educate his creation. Not just save it, but to educate it. You can go through college and not be educated. You need to understand that. You can go to school every day and not be educated. You can come to church every Sunday, every night of the week and not be educated in the things of the Lord. And he says, this child is born to us. A son is given. So he's given with a purpose. He's given with a goal in mind. He's given. And here comes part of the purpose in which he is given. He says, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government of his kingdom. The teaching of his kingdom. All that he's going to reveal to his people. And the responsibility of the people. All rest on who? On him. You and I are only what Jesus has created in us. We can take no credit of it. 
The moment we accepted Jesus Christ, we became his full responsibility. One of the worst things that men miss out on is this. They think it's something to father a child. That really doesn't make you a father or a dad. You father a child and you just take off. You do not know the joy of raising a child. You do not know the joy of having a child crawl up in the bed with you. You do not know the joy of sitting at a dinner table with a child or with your children and talking with them. You do not know the joy of the laughter or celebrating a birthday or Christmas or holidays with them. Men miss so much because they think manhood is to only father a child but not to raise a child. Jesus doesn't only father us, he raises us. And we need to understand that. And he never abandons us. And because it says the government is upon his shoulders, there is a kingdom, there are people who he then is responsible for. Now, what is a government responsible for? One of the first things a government is responsible for is simply this. The ability for its citizens to be productive and to prosper. So the government has to make a safe place in which its citizens can be educated in order that they can become productive citizens within the community in which they are living. And the government has to take on that responsibility. Jesus Christ did that. He created this safe place that's supposed to be the church. But in church life, more people are hurt by church. But we forget that there are sinners who attend church, and that's all of us. We are all learning to leave our sin where at? Behind us. And really become the citizens of heaven and the children of God. That's a process we go through. Just because I'm saved does not make me a mature, grown-up Christian. It means now I have to go through a process of learning this word of God and the Holy Spirit teaching me, taking things out of my life, but also instilling new things into my life. The government has the responsibility of protecting us from any foreign invasions, from any harm, from any other country. Jesus has that responsibility as being the governor over my life to protect me. Yes, 
I have guardian alarm at my house. Yes, we got dead boats on the house. When I leave out of town, Elaine takes the bicycle, puts it up against the door. She stacks other stuff. If I had to come in that side door in the garage, I couldn't get in. Even though I got a key. I mean, I got the ladder up there. I got this. I got so much stuff blocking the doorway, I couldn't get in. But the reality is this. As the psalmist says, he watches over me as I lay down at night and keep me. If God doesn't keep you, you won't be kept. And I'm not saying take off all your safety stuff, all your things that you need around the house to protect yourself, but the bottom line is this. If he doesn't protect you, you won't be protected. That's part of his job as governor and being over. And we need to understand that. That he also has another great responsibility. And we'll get more into it even next week. Jesus Christ has the responsibility of educating us. Have you ever tried to talk to a young child who knows everything? They haven't lived nothing but 15, 16, 17 years, but they got it all figured out and they know everything. Well, when you see that child, you all see yourself in the relationship with Jesus trying to teach us that he's there to teach us, to minister to us. And yet, We're like that child. We already know everything. Let me close out with this last one. Some commentaries and some books will say to you, there's five titles here in Isaiah, verse 7, and 6 and 7. He says, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Some will say five, others will say four, and I will say four also. Let me give you the reason why. Some will say wonderful, and they build just on the premise of wonderful. And then they build on the premise of counselor. Then they build on the premise of mighty God. Then they build on the premise of everlasting father. Then they build on the premises of prince of peace. If you take the last four, they all have a title or something before them. Everlasting father, prince of peace. Mighty God. And I believe with some and many others, wonderful counselor should be one word rather than separated. That he's a wonderful counselor. Now catch this. When you're in trouble, 
you've been hurt and you don't know who to trust or who to turn to or who to talk to. And sometimes life can be horrific. There can be terrible things that take place in our life. Jesus, because he's the one who's reigning, he's the one who is the governor of my life, who has to fully accept me the way I am, broken as I am, as hurting as I am. He becomes to me a wonderful counselor that I can understand my journey to him. Life. How many of you ever cried? And then how many of you have really cried? How many of you have been hurt? How many of you have really been hurt? Deeply hurt. And he becomes that wonderful counselor. He came that he might counsel us because he knows the hurt and the pain of life that we have endured. But he is out not to restore Israel. He's out to restore you and I. He's a wonderful Wonderful, wonderful counselor who is gentle and kind and full of patience and understanding. He's a wonderful counselor. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for sending unto us one who would reign in our life, who would rule in our life, who would protect us, who would provide for us, who would educate us, who would counsel us and guide us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and all that he is. He's much more than just the Savior. He's much more than someone, oh God, who came just to save me from my sins. He comes to teach me how to live as God would have me to live as a godly man, as a godly woman, as a godly child, as a godly individual. He comes to teach me and to strengthen me that I might be all that he desires me to be. Lord, would you minister to us? Would you help us go home and reflect on this and to chew on this and to think it over? Would you prepare our hearts for next week to understand that he came with a message because he is a mighty God and no one could stop his message. He's an everlasting father that his message is everlasting. There's no end to his kingdom because he's an everlasting God. And he understood for me to be able to live the way he wanted me to live, that the Prince of Peace would have to grant me peace in mind and in heart and with fellow men. 
Lord, minister to us, I pray. That we might understand more than just a baby in a manger. That what you gave unto us is much, much more than just the Savior. But one who governs and rules every emotion, every thought, every part of our being, if we allow him. Minister to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hark the herald angels sing Jesus the light of the world Glory to the newborn King Jesus the light of the world We will walk in the light Beautiful light Come where the dewdrops of mercy shine bright, shine all around us by day and by night. Jesus, light of the world, joyful all ye nation rise. Jesus, the light of the world, join the triumph of the sky, Jesus, the light of the world. We will walk in the light, beautiful light, come where the dewdrops of mercy shine bright, shine all around us by day and by night. Jesus, light of the world, we will walk in the light, the beautiful light, come where the dewdrops of mercy shine bright, shine all around us by day and by night, Jesus, the light of the world. mean to you? What thoughts will you give to it? I hope it's more than just what you're going out shopping for. I hope it's more than just a Christmas tree and lights around the house. But that you really take time to ask yourself, what was the real purpose of Jesus coming? What was his real purpose? And let his word answer that for you. And ask God, Lord, would you open your word to me that I might see your purpose? Father, would you dismiss us in your love? Would you dismiss us, Lord, 
in the power of your Holy Spirit ministering to us and bringing us, Lord, to a place to wrestle with our relationship with you. That is not like that marriage that enjoyed the wedding, the honeymoon, and then said goodbye to each other. But that, Lord, it is like the marriage that two people who have decided to live life together for as long as they live. And that we have become a people who have decided to live life with you as long as we have life on this earth. Would you make it so? Would you give us such a deep love and compassion for you that is not fleshly, but is from above? Would you work in us in these coming days like you have never worked in our lives before? And we'll give you praise and give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Yes, sir.